your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. We're moved by the short, quick videos, tweets, bumper sticker rhetoric, a perhaps under-discussed creator of the short and influential is the editorial cartoonist. In this evening's installment of What's It Really Like to Be a Whatever, here on Work with Marty Nemco, it's What's It Really Like to Be an Editorial Cartoonist. And there are few better qualified to tell us about that than Michael Ramirez. He's nationally syndicated by the prestigious Creators Syndicate, and he's won almost every major journalism award in America, including the National Journalism Award and the Pulitzer Prize twice. Michael Ramirez, welcome to work with Marty Nemco. Marty, it's great to be on the air with you. Great. Well, let's start with something. Tell me something I probably don't know about being an editorial cartoonist. Well, you know, I didn't know that the uh, the survival of the printed newspaper was was not going to last. That's something I never anticipated. Um, you know, I always grew up, Marty, reading the newspaper every morning with my dad. In fact, I may be the only editorial cartoonist who never thought about being an editorial cartoonist. I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon. Huh. And uh, all my brothers and sisters are doctors, and their spouses are doctors. I'm the black sheep of the family. Well, you are. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I always kind of joke um, when I'm giving speeches when people ask me, do you get death threats? I say you get them all the time dealing with politics, and people should be emotionally invested in their politics. Uh, so naturally, you get those death threats. But the first death threat I got was when I graduated from college. I told my parents I was, was going to take a year off from medical school to become a political cartoonist, and they threatened to kill me. <laughs> There's your first death threat from from very right. from very close. Well, what the hell? What was that moment that that that, that was the, the the trigger point? That pardon the pun from uh, from cardiovascular surgeon to uh, <laughs> to editorial cartoonist. Well, you know, when I went to school, I'm a graduate of University of California, Irvine. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and sister preceded me into medical school, and so they said, you know, at the time, uh, they weren't look- the medical schools were looking for more well-rounded candidates, and they didn't want me to biological science uh, major, but to incorporate something else. And I could always have this ability to draw, and so I. Um, I also uh, was a, a, a um, I, I took uh, I, I took arts, and I wrote for the school newspaper, and so I've always been involved in journalism to a certain extent as a writer, but not as a cartoonist. And there was an incident on the can uh, on our campus where uh, some people were running for um, you know the uh, presidency of the uh, student uh, representation and. None of them really had a good platform to run. It was more of a popularity contest than anything. And um, I'd just come in to write a uh, editorial on it, and my editor saw me carrying a painting, and she said, I didn't know you could draw. Why don't you do a political cartoon on it? So I interviewed mm. all the candidates. There was no real good reason for them to run, and so I made fun of all of them. Mm. Now, Marty, I'd been writing these hard-hitting editorials <laughs> and, and these written pieces, and nobody really... Uh, ever took notice of it, but the day that cartoon came out, I had three days' worth of protest over this drawing. Wow. And it was remarkable, the impact that it had. Yeah. And I think that first uh, drew me into into the idea of doing political cartoons just as a hobby. 
It wasn't until uh, about a, well, I got hired by a local newspaper just a, a month and a half after that first cartoon ran. It wasn't a, until a cartoon that I had done for the Newport Ensign on this, uh, this gentleman was arrested early in the morning. He was arrested for drunk driving. They didn't allow him a phone call. It turned out he was a city councilman who didn't <laughs> drink. They kind of roughed him up a bit. Mm-hmm. And so I drew this guy uh, hogtied on the hood of a police car with a shoe wedge in his mouth. And he was explaining to the arresting officer, I was merely reinforcing his constitutional right to remain silent. <laughs> when that cartoon came out, the police chief, the Newport Beach police chief, came down to the office, yelled at the publisher, yelled at the editor, and tried to find out where I lived. And suddenly, it dawned on me what a profound impact these drawings mm-hmm. have. And I think that's the moment that I fell in love with the art form. Yeah. And it would seem as though... You know, or we're moving to shorter and shorter form, where in the world, you know, people are less likely to read a book and an article, perhaps, and but it's tweets and and quick, short, one-minute videos. Do you see the world of the editorial cartoonist growing because of this, or is it still considered kind of a dinosaur back in the Herb Block days? Well, I see. I pr- the the print edition of the editorial cartoon mm-hmm. um, may be uh, right. More the way of the dinosaur. But I think online it's found a new life, and you're exactly right. People have a short attention, uh, a, a, sort of an attention deficit. But these visual images, if you do them right, mm-hmm. and I kind of look at political cartoons as, as comparable to the um, Super Bowl ads. You've got, I mean, the design of the cartoon is, is built the same way. You've got five seconds to capture the viewer's mm-hmm. attention. Mm-hmm. Five seconds to make the pitch, mm-hmm. and uh, it has to be visually appealing or funny enough that you're going to get their attention. And once they've seen it, it's too late to bait it. You know, the drawing is the bait in the trap, and you've got them. And, and that's how you make the uh, pitch. Now, unlike uh, the Super Bowl ads, we're not selling products; we're selling ideas. Mm-hmm. But the, the the projection is the same. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about some specific cartoons you've done recently, but something I just flashed in my brain. If, God forbid, you know, uh, the angels on high told you you had one more cartoon and then you were going to drop dead, what, <laughs> what, uh, what w- do you have any idea what that cartoon would be? You know, that's, that's hard to say because we usually uh, were motivated by news events. Right, right. But there Respect. is one on self-responsibility that, I, that I'm designing in my head. Uh, as I go along, um, it seems to me that in the state of politics today, and, and just in the world in general, that uh, there there don't there, there there seems to be a trend in our culture where we're moving away from being adults to being children, and I think we need to to regather um, this idea of self responsibility and in your own actions and. Um, taking responsibility for those actions instead of being led around by everybody else, our culture, having the government take care of you, those kinds of things. I think that's the last thing I would want to leave with my audience is to say, hey, it's ta- you know, the great, the great uh, fabric of this nation was built on self-governance and self-responsibility, individual liberty. Those things need to be tied to self-responsibility. So, you know, uh, every one of your cartoons, uh, you know, I was reading your stuff, and it starts with the idea, and there is an idea. Can you give me a window into your mind? How would you take, what would be your first thoughts on how to take that germ of an idea 
and translate it into a, into a visual, into a cartoon. Well, you know, the construction of a cartoon, a polit- an editorial cartoon, and I call it an editorial cartoon because I really look at it, Marty, as an act of journalism. Mm-hmm. Sure. What we're doing, we're not, we're not trying to entertain people. Right, we're right, trying right. to make a point. Right. So the construction is exactly the way you would write an editorial um, column on any, uh, any issue. Uh, you know, most of our job is done in the early mornings when we're reading everything we can get our hand on, mm-hmm. hands on and substantiating our point of view. I mean, um, you can't just draw a cartoon as an emotional reaction to events. It has to be well thought out and qualified. In fact, I always say that um, part of my job as an editorial cartoonist is not to just design a cartoon, but to decide which cartoons not to run. Mm-hmm. That's almost as important as the, the idea. But the construction's the same. So you, you find an issue that catches your eye. That so, you I mean, that's important. what I'm talking about here. So this, this very, the, the issue you said would be your last cartoon. So it's the issue of personal responsibility. What if you were saying, okay, damn it, now I've got to start creating this thing. How would you take that germ of an idea? And tr- and translate it into something visual with a funny punchline. What, right. Take me a window into your. Give me a window well, into the way you're thinking. As you would do in, in any thesis that you're trying to write, is you would construct uh, one sentence line of what, what you're trying to say. Um, America needs to find self-responsibility. From that, um, you know, this is a, this is the byproduct after investigating stories that saying that uh, more people are dependent on government. I think uh, the statistics are something like uh, 47% of Americans uh, you do, not, do not vote for the president, or, or, or 47% of the president uh, do not pay federal taxes. Uh, one in four are on um, some kind of government um, service. So you do all the research first, then you come up to the thesis of your statement, which is America needs to find it of the adults and its responsibility. Then you start thinking of the visual mm-hmm. images that might capture the person's right. attention and sell that product. What comes to mind? That's exactly where I'm trying to head. What's, is there a visual image? That cut your, I mean, you've won two Pulitzer Prizes for your editorial cartoons. You won the um, National Journalism Award for your... What comes to mind as that visual image? Well, you know, actually it would be, I think in this circumstance, it would be a series of of cartoons on things that people are not taking responsibility for, I think. Um, so it might be a construction of several panels, okay. where in one panel, instead of uh, you know blaming, uh, instead of taking self-responsibility for being a heroin addict, you blame the pharmaceutical companies. Um, instead of um, you know t- saying that, uh, and there'd be a series of different points that I would make along those lines that would lead the viewer into all the examples in society where we are not taking self-responsibility and blaming it on um, culture or larger events. So what comes to my mind is, if it, the, you know, humor is supposed to be an exaggeration. So the most extreme example is, let's say there's a guy with an axe murderer. He's there holding the axe, and the, he's already he's chopped off the head of some innocent, let's say, an old, an aged nun or whatever. And he's the blood is all over the axe, and he is somehow blaming it on some on the axe maker or something. Well, no, yeah, exactly. He's blaming the axe. Right. For his own responsibility. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Um, exactly, exactly. Except I, I think I would go through, the, the idea that I have in my mind for that cartoon is, is about very specific points of 
things that I think Americans are shying responsibility from. Anyway, and then when I when I was talking about deciding on which cartoons not to draw, I mm. think that's an important element. Mm. Um, and I'm I'm not sure how other editorial cartoonists do it. We, it's such an individual art that we all do it in different ways. You know, uh, the modern trend in editorial cartooning is sort of um, like uh, the the Daily Show. You know, making uh, jokes about current affairs. I think um, we're separate from that because without having a substantive statement, it diminishes the importance of the editorial cartoon. So the editorial cartoon is not just a funny picture. Right. It's, a, um, it's an instrument of journalism, and you're supposed to relay a point of view. So what's one you've rejected? You know, you say you've now twice mentioned that Part of what makes a good editorial cartoonist is deciding what not to run. What's something that was on the that was on the fence, that was on the gray area? It was a gray area. You weren't sure. What's something you rejected and decided to not uh, post it, publish it? Well, you know, part of it is, is is a measure of taste too. Because if you make something so controversial and it's in such bad taste, then mm-hmm. you lose the opportunity sure. to sell the point of view because the people get mired in the uh, you know the sort of the uh, other parts of the elements the outrageousness of rather than yeah. the point you're trying to make but, but but a good example is for instance when Johnny Cochran died right and everybody knows Johnny Cochran is the uh, the lead of the defense team for OJ Simpson right a lot of people thought that they that he got uh, OJ Simpson off uh, mm-hmm. uh, for murder which I did as well mm-hmm. and when Johnny died the first image that immediately came to my mind was uh, Cochran at the gates of heaven and St. Peter was saying I'm sorry, Johnny. If the halo don't fit, we don't admit. <laughs> now that's a that's a pretty straightforward cartoon, yeah. and Johnny did get a murderer off. Um, but when I examined Johnny Cochran's career, mm-hmm. a, a closer examination revealed a generous man who had engaged in mm-hmm. many charitable causes, mm-hmm. and it seemed unfair to define him by this one case. Mm-hmm. And so. Well, you know, I didn't do that cartoon. Good example. You're listening to work with Marty Nemco. I am talking with Michael Ramirez. He is a winner of the National Journalism Award and the Pulitzer Prize twice as an editorial cartoonist. And we do a semi-regular feature on the show called What's It Really Like to Be a... And we've done everything from psychiatrists to prostitutes, or I guess we should call them sex workers these days. But I've never done editorial cartoonists, so it is indeed a privilege to be talking to Michael Ramirez. Let's talk specifically about a cartoon of yours that you, that you wrote this week. You did one this week that shows Kamala Harris in front of a bus and Joe Biden at the back of the bus. And the bus is going the wrong way down a one-way street. Can you walk me through the steps you took from the idea, whatever that idea was, to all the way to the published cartoon? Sure. The genesis of the cartoon was the, the irony of in the debate uh, that they had of, uh, of Joe Biden being um, skewed by his support for busing in an earlier part of his political career. And Kamala, of course, had used it um, with and had used it very well, I think, uh, to uh, prominently within the debate to showcase her point of view. And so the irony there of, of uh, her being the child and her story in the debate of being a child who was bust sort of uh, brought an image to my mind right off the bat. Now, um, the question of uh, Biden's moderation and uh, a lot of these forces within the Democrat Party that are trying to be 
more on the extreme left also entered the equation, so that became a component of the cartoon. And it seemed to me that uh, with everybody assailing Biden and taking and trying to take him out as the leader right now of all the uh, candidates running for the Democratic primary, that it was now really on that debate stage, it was Joe riding in the back of the bus, mm-hmm. uh, Kamala in the driver's seat in full control. But because of their left, extreme left instincts, the bus is going the wrong way. So it was almost a literal translation of how I viewed um, her part and his part in the debate. So those are, you know, again, we're still in the idea phase. I can see the bus. Now you've got a visual image of the bus. You could have just scratched it out, you know, scrawled it. How did you take the, the original scrawl that you probably just did in black and white pencil? What was an important decision point you made in turning that from just a sketch into a final cartoon? Well, you know, it's, it's really amazing. Um, in my mind, when I conceive of these cartoons, um, and I'll, I'll think of maybe 15 or 20 different ideas for any one subject, mm. but when I find the one that I think is the right idea, I see them in, in completed uh, windows of what the cartoon's going to be. So I immediately knew exactly what I was going to draw. The, 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 the change might have been... Um, taking it from a really beaten-up jalopy bus to a short bus. Um, that was only the only real significant change. Why did you change people, that? Well, I, I changed it to a shorter bus because I, I, it kind of made me laugh a little bit um, because you, you always have the, the special needs kids mm. riding short buses, mm. and I, I, I kind of put them in that same category mm. with this kind of discussion that, uh, you know, this accusation that Joe Biden was some kind of racist. Um, which to me was a ridiculous assumption, being that he was the vice president of the United States, and our first African American president had picked him as, as his running mate. And I doubt if, if uh, Barack Obama would have picked Joe Biden if he thought he was a racist. You know, on your website there was another cartoon you did, and it was really fascinating to me because you really did walk through all the steps. And this was one in which <laughs> the, this was. Uh, um, Harvey Weinstein in bed with the Democrat <laughs> Party donkey. And uh, the bubble, <laughs> the text says, we're shocked. We're sh- the, the donkey is saying, we're shocked, shocked, <laughs> disappointed with that Harvey Weinstein fellow. Walk me through the genesis of that cartoon from idea through rendering through polishing. Well, you know, the most amazing thing is that Hollywood has been promoting this, you know, the Me Too movement. Hollywood has been promoting this culture of, of selling sex and of utilizing sex um, throughout the entertainment industry uh, for promotions. Um, and uh, everybody knew about it. It was out in the open. open. Uh, everybody knew what Harvey Weinstein had done and what he was doing. It was kind of an open secret. It kind of reminded me of that scene in Casablanca, where where the uh, lieutenant comes in and he say I'm shocked and shocked to find gambling going on here, in, in uh, the casino. Um, here you have a bunch of figures that are closely wed to these massive political contributors to their campaigns. Harvey Weinstein was a big contributor to the Democrats. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And and the, so they were uh, you know literally in bed with Harvey Weinstein. Right. <laughs> and then when everything started to fall apart, of course they t- tried to distance themselves and they said they were shocked. You know, 
that that uh, particular subject spawned. Uh, I must have had twenty or twenty-five different ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, on you know, I had one where. Um, well, I think on the website I showed different sketches. Right. The process. So what what happens in the process is I'll I'll read articles um, about these particular subjects, find out all the specifics, because you cannot make a reasonable, uh, a reasoned argument without knowing uh, all the, uh, I think, the minutiae and details of all these issues. In fact, I always tell people, I mean, if you firmly believe in something, you should read the opposite of it. Right. Because it's going to mostly, uh, it'll reinforce your original ideas, or it'll tell you that you're wrong. Right. So you should have a well-balanced view about the issue. Agreed. And so once you do that, then you start assembling different ideas, and the ideas just come out of my cynical, uh, <laughs> obnoxious uh, sense of humor. And uh, what I'll do is I'll write them down on these cocktail napkins, uh, because as much as I, I, I'll think of an idea and I'll think, wow, that's a terrific idea, forget it. I think of another idea, and that is long forgotten. So I've, I've got this... Uh, I've got these cocktail napkins that I've stolen from a, a nearby Mexican restaurant that I always go to on Tuesdays and discuss politics with a friend. And I jot these little ideas down. And it's amazing, when you went on the website, you could see how the scribbles kind of look like the final product. I mean, there's not much of a difference. Mm. Uh, the, the proportion is all the same. The characters kind of look the same. Um, and then I'll have four or five of these. It usually comes down to about maybe seven ide- uh, different ideas on one subject, and I've got these friends of mine that whose opinions I respect. Part of the, you know, when I was co-managing the Investors Business Daily editorial uh, board, a lot of those guys, and I'll send them the different versions of these ideas and ask them which ones they like the best, which ones, uh, you know, had an impact on their thinking, and then I'll totally disregard anything they say and pick the one I liked. <laughs> and then from that, it becomes a, uh, it becomes a black and white drawing. Uh, I, I usually uh, even, I'll sketch it out on a piece of paper with just a marker, um, because I'll do that from the cocktail napkins uh, into a piece of paper that I could scan in so I could send it around to everybody. Um, then I, I, I'll take a window or a lighting board or something, and I'll usually just trace what I've, what I've drawn from the napkin, and that becomes a cartoon. So it becomes a black-and-white template. The black-and-white template's then scanned into the computer, and then the com- and on the computer I add color because now um, everybody uses color. Right. Um, and that becomes the final product. But it's usually the one, I think, the, the best cartoons are the most concise, uh, ideas, the ones where you see and you immediately get it. In fact, right. one of my favorite cartoons uh, that I've ever drawn was a cartoon called The Moral Fabric, and it was just a, a stark picture of an American flag where it's just slowly unraveling. You can see just the thread of it coming off the side of the page, and the flag itself is unraveling. Mm-hmm. And I, I love it because it's so concise. It's immediate rec- immediately recognizable. You know exactly what it says and what it means. Yeah, you had you had one that we, we, like that reminded me of that, which is when George Washington was on the Delaware River with it in the famous the famous pose, and then you've got uh, uh, Colin Kaepernick saying, and they're holding the American flag, and Colin Kaepernick says, "I am deeply offended," or something like that. <laughs> right, yeah. right, and and the you know the reason behind it is that there's a measure of history that needs to be taken 
in its context. And, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't understand this silly notion that, that, that the uh, old glory would offend anybody. I had different versions of that as well. I had uh, Betty Ross uh, sitting there, uh, you know, sewing the flag together with a football player just slamming into her. <laughs> Mm. And knocking her, you know, knocking the sewing needles and everything out about. Of course, that's the danger, of course, in 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 anything that's short form, because somebody would say, yes, the American flag is a symbol of racism, sexism, oppression, and you know, uh, class and, and capitalism is, uh, you know, there's too many losers. So there's always another side. Speaking of which, how much editorial freedom? Do you actually you're you're published by the the really prestigious Creators Syndicate, which along with the New York Times Syndicate and the Washington Post Syndicate, I mean the Creators Syndicate is a very prestigious syndicator that sends your your cartoons all over the world. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I get hate mail from all over the world. <laughs> you know, Marty, I, I, I'm actually the editorial cartoonist uh, now for the Las Vegas Review. Uh-huh. Um, of course, I'm also syndicating creators. So yeah. Uh, you get you, you do for your paper. They they get twenty four hour. And it goes to the syndicate. All the other papers. All right. And so, are you, how much do 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 any of the whether either the syndicate or an individual newspaper? How much um, you know? Do they do they ever censor your your uh, submission? No, no. In fact, uh, one of the deals I worked out with both entities is is giving me complete complete um, creative freedom. And I think you need that as a component sure. to be able to do your job. Is that unusual, or is that because you've won two Pulitzers in the National Journalism Award? Do most <laughs> do most do most you know journalists, whether they be cartoonist journalists or text, do uh, you know? I'm sure you chat with your fellow folks. How much censorship is there these days? You know, I, I've had the luxury of of never. Um, I've only had one cartoon ever canned in my career, um, and I've had the luxury. Of being being able to pick and choose my employment, hmm. and and get the sort of environment that I needed to excel at what I do. The one cartoon that got canned was um, I, I was working at the Memphis Commercial Appeal, hmm. and uh, the president of of the uh, Commercial Appeal had died in this horrible uh, car accident on New Year's Eve day, hmm. and so another editor from the Scripps Howard chain came over and took over the paper, Angus McCarran. And Angus and I ended up being great friends. He, he was a terrific editor, um, really helped me, I think, uh, to formulate, to, to become a better editorial cartoonist. But Angus and I initially did not get along at all, because Angus was a very liberal editor, uh, and I was a very conservative uh, cartoonist. Although I, I speak broadly like that, I'm an equal opportunity offender, um, and I will go after anybody that uh, threatens our constitutional liberties. Uh, it doesn't matter what party they're from. But Angus was very liberal, and uh, the the uh, the liberal establishment within Memphis, Tennessee, did not like me at all. In fact, we had civic leaders and politicians in Angus's office for a week lined up, and the first thing they were asking was to get me fired. And so uh, Angus had discovered Rob Rogers. Um, you know, Rob is the one who had uh, was dismissed by the Pittsburgh Post Gazette for his um, his Trump cartoons because he had done too many Trump cartoons, as Rob had said. Um, but it was mostly because he had done Trump cartoons every single day. But a- anyways, um, he had discovered Rob, and th- the idea was that Angus was going to come into Memphis and he was going to bring this cartoonist that he had developed 
uh, and replace me. And Rob actually heard about the rumor, too, and called me up. Rob was a friend of mine. And he said, don't believe any of the rumors. I'd never work for that guy because he's a big jerk, which was not very reassuring at all that my new editor uh, was going to be a big jerk. And sure enough, uh, when I first met him, we did not get along. Uh, the first editorial meeting that we had, the editorial cartoonist is part of the editorial board. I did what I normally do, which is uh, yell and scream about the things that I'm advocating. Uh, and it got so, it, it, the, the argument got so, so heated that Angus kicked me out of the editorial meeting. Hmm. And then two days later, canned, the only cartoon I've ever had canned in my career. And it was, the issue was on workfare. So Bill Clinton was pr- promoting workfare. Uh, which is you had to do something in order to get welfare. And so I had Uncle Sam, this Uncle Sam figure, sitting in an alley, um, lying with a bunch of bums, and he had a newspaper that said workfare on it. And he, he was holding a sign that said, we'll work for food, and he's turning it to the the guy next to him saying, you mean they want us to work? Mm-hmm. And it was a perfectly legitimate cartoon. And so um, I'd done the cartoon, and then I got word from Angus that he was that uh, he had canned the cartoon. And so I went down to the office and I said, this is a legitimate cartoon. I gave him all the supporting statistics behind the cartoon and why I, th- I thought it was uh, legitimate. And uh, he said, I'm the, I'm the president of this newspaper and it will never run in this paper. And I said, that's fine. I'm not going to do another cartoon because it's a perfectly legitimate cartoon. And it may not run in this paper, but it's going to run in 450 other papers in my syndication, through syndication. And so we just did not get along. And then that Friday, I, I had a meet, I arranged for a meeting with him, and, and uh, I just confronted him and said, "Look, uh, you know, the only way an ed- a good editorial cartoonist can do good editorial cartoons is have the environment that nurtures that. If you don't like my philosophy, then I think it's perfectly legitimate for you to fire me. Um, what I can promise you is, if, if you give me, if you let me exercise this freedom." I will never do a cartoon that I, I've never done a cartoon that I've ever regretted. They will all be substantiated, and they'll be better uh, quality cartoons than any cartoon you'll get. And I'll win you a Pulitzer. But if you don't want that, then I want you to fire me, and I want you to do it right now. And Angus looked at me, and he laughed, and he said, No, I, I think you do a good job. Uh, you can do whatever you want. And from that point on, we just got along great. And uh, I never had a problem with them. And you won two Pulitzers. And, and I had mentioned er, earlier in the show, I mentioned Herblock, um, but my uh, my board operator uh, uh, asked a question. Was you know Herblock was the most memorable um, uh, editorial cartoonist. He was the chief, and he was also certainly syndicated. I remember reading him in New York, uh, but he was originally at the Washington Post until 2001. Uh, was he an inspiration to you, or uh, a thorn in your side, or what? Well, you know, honestly. Um What's strange about this, you know, in the beginning of the show, I was telling you how I never conceived being a political cartoonist. And so I never really looked into other cartoonists. Hmm. Um, We read two newspapers in the morning. Uh, It was a tradition in my family uh, where we had the the Los Angeles Times and the Orange County Register. The L.A. Times was uh, far left. The Orange County Register was kind of libertarian right. And, um, you know, so I got a dose of Jeff McNelly who was actually the cartoonist for the... At that time, I think he was with the uh, Richmond Times-Dispatch, but he became the famous uh, Chicago Tribune cartoonist. 
and Jeff drew these just beautiful illustrations. But he had such a great sense of humor. Um, I think uh, that that was a lethal combination because he had this beautifully rendered illustration with this hilarious point where you could reach a much larger audience with your message because of the humor. Right. And the, and the L.A. Times had Paul Conrad who drew these just very stark, graphic, dark images, and, and they're powerful, powerful images. And I think those were my influences when I was growing up. And so uh, when I started doing cartoons, I think I, my, I formulated my style um, along those lines, except I combined both entities. So I've got these uh, kind of realistic, dark images with a lot of humor. So the images capture the attention, the humor keeps you there, and then they get the point of view. So I didn't really look at Herb Block's cartoons that much. That much. In fact, I've always made it a practice in my profession, because we deal with the, all the same issues, not to look at other cartoons. I see. We're out of time, but I want one more question. If you know, The show is focused on careers. Um, if I were a person who was considering starting a career as a cartoonist, an editorial cartoonist, say, in now, in 2019, coming into 2020, what advice would you give me? Well, you know, I would say make an Internet presence. I think that's, that's the thing. Um, the, the social media and the Internet sure. is such a powerful instrument now. It's basically your own, um, it's your own TV station <laughs> where you could uh, assemble and, and showcase your talent before a large, wide audience. As long as you can drive traffic to it, and that's the million-dollar right. question. That's right. And I think those are the things that get you to the next step, which would be to uh, solicit newspapers. Obviously, it would be great to have a base of operation um, and have lawyers to insulate you from anything that happens mm. legally mm. down the road. Mm. But also, it will um, allow you to solicit a syndication, which is you know, like actors and actresses have agents. Uh, cartoonists, we have syndicates, right. and they sell our product to the world. Right. And uh, I would I would recommend that if you're going to do this, that you do one cartoon a day because you're going to be expected to deliver yep. four minimum for your syndicate, probably five for any newspaper. I do seven a week, mm. um, and I would do more, but I I just don't have time to to, to draw them all. Mm. Um, but uh, you have to be able to, you have to be able to do that every single day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I would also say to have a good foundation of knowledge and you know in, in history on uh, how our government functions it's something that uh, our friend uh, Colin Kaepernick doesn't seem to understand um, and and know these issues and look at editorial cartooning from the serious serious nature of a journalistic eye mm-hmm. than as an entertainment forum right. I, I just don't think uh, you know, it's good for some other cartoonists to do that, but I really believe in the uh, um, in the idea that these poignant statements are important to initiate or to be the catalyst for um, you know political dialogue. I think that's what what makes our country extraordinary is that we can have these sort of um, combative debates and still be civil, and um, that produces you know great 
great ideas for a country. And certainly humor can help leaven some of the anger that is rampant around, uh, around politics these days. So thank you for, uh, for leavening at least slightly the, the rancor that uh, is, alas, uh, <laughs> pervasive. Uh, Michael Ramirez, um, if people want to see your, um, your cartoons, you've got a wonderful website. What's the website? It's, it's Michael... the, the website is michaelpramirez.com. michaelpramirez.com. Right, and you can always find me um, in the Las Vegas Review Journal. Okay, and but he is also nationally syndicated, so he's in 450 newspapers. So anyway, Michael Ramirez, thanks again for being my guest on Work with Marty Nemco. It was my pleasure, Marty. It was great speaking to you. Good, you be well. Okay, bye-bye. Speaking of speaking, um, and this is free. I don't like to promote things where I'm getting paid because um, it just feels a little too commercial for my taste. Um, I am... Um, going to be speaking for free at uh, the Coret Auditorium in the San Francisco Civic Center on what is the topic that has been of greatest interest to my listeners and readers, and that is procrastination and time management. It's uh, sponsored by the San Francisco Public Library, and it is at the Coret Auditorium, which is in the main branch of the, uh, uh, of the San Francisco Public Library. It is a week from Saturday from 10 a.m. to noon. So I'm not just going to be talking. We'll be doing some interactive stuff as well. It is free, so I hope to see you there. Um, Again, Corvette Auditorium, San Francisco Public Library, a week from Saturday, uh, 10 to 12. We've got somebody who uh, calls with, uh, they've got something, I imagine, a comment about the the cartoonist. So I will welcome you, because I haven't given out the phone number, so (laughs) welcome to work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. What's on your mind? Hi there, Marty. Uh, is it okay if I ask you work questions? Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. I was actually sure. preferring that. I had somehow a feeling that usually when, when before I give out the, if somebody calls after an interview before I've given out the phone number, usually because they're they're about to um, uh, cut off my neck for something I must have said inadvertently <laughs> or whatever. So no, it is a relief to to, to uh, try to help you with your work problem. Well, tell me the situation. Well, okay, Marty. Uh, well, uh, I guess Mr. Ramirez was talking about personal responsibility and how things come down to you. But sometimes um, when I'm picking jobs, it seems like you get uh, some good choices in front of you and you're, you're kind of making a gamble on which is going to be the mm-hmm. best career path sure. that will give you the best uh, outcome. Sure. And so right now I'm in a job. And I'm not looking for a new job, but I am being offered more responsibility mm-hmm. in the company, mm-hmm. which would look a lot better on my resume and would give me nicer standing in the company. But I'm afraid that um, the higher-ups might not be uh, thinking ahead about planning how much work this is going to add to my schedule. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, I wanted to ask you, how do I address this with them so that we can all be happy, and I don't end up burnt out and then dumb, angry at me for not doing a good job. Sure, great. So um, I'm going to throw out something, and you tell me whether this in this situation feels right for you. So sure. I would probably make a list of the responsibilities you'd be having in an approximate amount of time that each will likely take. 
and and it'll probably I'm guessing from what you're saying it would come to 60, 70, 80 hours a week or whatever and I might show it to them but in a non-accusatory way and say I'm honored that you've uh, you think enough of me to to take on this additional responsibility but as I look at it and lay it out it looks like we've got about 80 hours a week of work here here's how I've laid that out am I misunderstanding something that way you're not accusatory you're putting it in their lap and then they say well you don't really need to do this or you can do this a little less would that work in this situation? I guess so. They're still planning on exactly what the uh, what the added oh, great. will contain because uh, it, it's going to be part of a larger committee of people that doesn't exist yet. Okay. That's uh, even better so, because now the job is cast in jello. So right. at at the meeting, you can craft. When you think about the things that you like to do, that you do well, think about the things you don't like to do, that you do poorly, and see if in the conversation, without stressing that it's your preferences, talk about what would be better for the organization that would better capitalize on your strengths and skirt your weaknesses so that before the job description is ossified, cast in stone, while it is still cast in jello, you can mold it to the 40 or 50 hours a week or whatever you want to work that is best suited to you. How does that feel? I guess that sounds reasonable. Uh, I guess, I, I just guess I'm kind of nervous because I'm going to be talking to the executives, right? Okay. And inventing a job on the spot. So, so you want to be uh, tentative. So you want to be crisp but tentative. You say, right. from where I sit in listening to all, you know, listen to them for starters and then say, you want to be crisp and you say, in, you know, good executives are crisp. They don't, they don't want long-winded stories. So you listen to them a little bit and then at the right moment you come and say, you know, in listening to you and doing some of my own preparation for this meeting, it appears that in light of what you said and what I'm thinking would emphasize my strengths, it seems like the job description should include A, B, C, and D. What do you guys think? See how crisp that is, and that allows you a measure of control and will gain you the respect of those executives. Do you buy that? That sounds pretty good, Marty. Thanks a lot for that. You're most welcome. I appreciate you calling work with Marty Nemco, even though I didn't give out the phone number. It was an unsolicited <laughs> call, and I'm happy to have had it. I wish you the best. Thanks. And now I guess I should give out the phone number so that people who are polite and waited for me to give out the phone number got their chance. So, uh, if you've got any kind of work-related problem, I am always happy to help. The price is certainly right. Zero Zippo not of the show. Work with Marty Nemco, the station, K-A-L-W. The phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Now, um, I always like sharing good news. And a headline in the San Jose Mercury News this week was tech jobs soar to all-time record heights in Bay Area, written by their specialty business writer, uh, their employment specialist, George Avalos. And I'm just going to read you the quote. The Bay Area's technology boom is so robust that it has reached record highs. Tech employment, the economic engine of Silicon Valley for two decades, Growing is growing at a faster pace than all other sectors and has soared well above the lofty pinnacles of the dot-com era. So not only is the unemployment rate 3.6% the lowest in 50 years, but certainly, you know, for techies, it's good news. Of course, if you're not technical, alas, we are in a world that in which good-paying jobs, well-paying jobs, good-paying jobs, um, well-paying jobs, I guess, um, are much more likely to uh, require a, an ever-increasing measure of tech skills. But anyway, that's good news for, for, for those of you who are uh, 
And, you know, all-time highs are good words. Uh, and, indeed, uh, the uh, pay is finally going up. It was for a while the after the recession, uh, while the unemployment rate was starting to go down, there was not an increase in wages, but now they have started to go up. Uh, phone number again, if you want to work over, you've got a work-related problem, 415-841-4134. That's the number here at Work with Marty Nemco and KELW, 415-841-4134. That call actually made me think of something. You know, we all would like to get kind of an edge in in the job market and getting a good job. And I think I want to lay out for you how to maximize your chances of getting that holy grail good job. Because there's a whole lot of people who look for a job and finally they land a job and then they find they hate it. And so your best chance is what I call a good deal in a job is the following. You do want to cast a wide net in looking for a job. And then when you get an interview to ask what I call vetting questions, both during the interview and before accepting the job. Read what the employees at the place say on Glassdoor. Glassdoor is great. Yes, there's going to have a, some disgruntled workers are more likely to respond, but also people who love working there. Some of them are just suck-ups, but some of them really do love it. But that's just a good data point. And just elsewhere on the net. You know, um, you can Google, like, working at Amazon. What's that really like? And when you're in the interviews, this is critical. Asking questions like, why did the incumbent leave? And all bosses are different. In what ways are you? Now, of course, you know, they're on their best behavior, too, and you may not get the most candid answer. But sometimes, you know, you can get some, you can get, you can get a feel just in the tone. Like, for example, say it's a group interview. And the boss answers the the question, you know, uh, the question was, all bosses are different. In what ways are you? Said, well, I have an open-door policy, and I really like to individualize my management style to match the strength of the person. When that person is answering, look for any subtle change in the other interviewers in that group interview, their facial expression. Like, if they tighten their lips or even roll their eyes, that tells you something. Also, as I said... You want to vet them when you're offered the job. Don't just let them send you an email with terms and say yes, no, or negotiate an item or three. Ask to come in to negotiate the terms. Not only does that convey that you're planning to take the negotiation seriously, it allows you to observe the vibe in the office. Right? People look disgruntled, happy, busy, content, goofing off, polishing their nails. Plus, when you hang out in the break room, which you should um, before you take the job, you might ask employees a question like, you know, I've been offered a job here. Uh, what uh, what should I know about working here that might not appear in the official handbook? They Again, they may not say a whole lot. You know, they're not going to tell tales out of school to a stranger. But they do, again, look at their facial expression and their tone. If somebody enthusiastically says, oh, it's good, that's very different than it's good. Same words, different tone. You can often learn a lot. Okay. So, um, now, I want to talk about something that is a really potent, not for job seekers, because we are in record unemployment uh, lows. So, many people are not looking for jobs, but they're in a job, and yet they want to keep growing, and they want to keep improving. And there's something that I call peer co-mentoring that can be invaluable. I Actually, I call it personally, I call it my board of advisors, but in peer co-mentoring, Two to eight people, maybe six people, whatever, meet regularly, whether in person or virtually, you know, by phone or teleconference if it's more than two people, or Skype or FaceTime or Zoom, 
to listen, ask questions, and offer advice to each other. Usually the focus is on a problem that the person, one person is facing in the group because then it rotates. But sometimes, especially after a relationship among the members is developed, it might be simply to report on something good or bad or just interesting that happened to the person or is upcoming for the person. I have initiated and been a participant for years in a peer co-mentoring pair and in a group of eight, which again I call the Board of Advisors. And I want to share with you a kind of a, what I've learned about how to make those work well. Because as I said, one of them, both of them, I mean, the group of eight has been running for three years. The pair, we've been doing it for like 10. So if, you know, if it wasn't working, people would have quit long ago. So anyway, here are the, some of the ground rules. I think I'll share them in a minute, but let's, I always like to prioritize you, my dear listeners. So I will share some tips on how to make peer co-mentoring or your board of advisors work well, but let's go to the phones. Welcome to work. I'll give out the phone number, though. If you, uh, if you have a work-related problem, the phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Okay, to the phones. Welcome to the show. It's your turn on the air. What's on your mind? Hi. Um, so first of all, I know my dad is listening. He's been telling me to call you for <laughs> a, about a year. Um, my name is Connor. Um, um, I'm a, I, um, I um, got my bachelor's uh, about a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering what career advice you had for someone looking to get into the um, working field and moving forward and maybe, you know, just things to consider. Um, okay, the, maybe, the working field. That's kind of broad. Give me a couple of clues to who the hell Connor is. So I um, got my degree in um, parks and rec management. I've been doing the um, seasonal mm-hmm. gig for the past couple of seasons. Mm-hmm. I have a um, background um, doing teaching. Mm-hmm. So I've I've taught um, customer service to people. I've taught skiing. Um, all kinds of different stuff. Um, and I've kind of been toying with the idea of going back to school and doing prereqs to maybe get into something in the um, 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 health services field, like either nursing or maybe uh, a vet program. I'm going to interrupt you. Here's my first intuition. You sound kind of like a laid-back guy, kind of, you know, you like skiing, you like parks and rec. Are you a pretty laid-back guy? Yeah, I'd say yeah, so. I think so too. That was just just the intuition. I want, you said I got my BA and I kind of want to get into the working field. It, you're sounding like a laid back guy, and so mm-hmm. a laid laid back guys generally do better outside of the go go world of the capitalist for profit world. And given that you like teaching, and uh, that I would encourage you, especially because I really think it's going to be ever tougher over the work span of your life, work span between now at 20, whatever you are, until you're 80, things are going to get ever harder in the private sector and ever more of our government. I'm seeing so much of the progressive movement going to lead toward more more government, more government jobs, more putting more onto corporations. So corporations are going to automate more. They're going to downsize more. They're going to offshore more. I would argue that the the wise thing for you to do would be to become a a public school teacher. It's unionized. You get job security for life, essentially, after two or three years. Uh, you, You get great benefits. You get great retirement. Uh, and it's pro-social. You're helping the next generation. And it's, you know, while some teachers kill themselves, in general, I believe that for a relatively laid-back person, being a teacher, if done right, can be a good opportunity for work-life balance. What do you like and not like about that vision? 
Um, you know, that's that's something I'd never even considered. So, um, off the top of my head, it's nice. Um, just going back to my um, skiing background, I've taught some kids that I figured that you know, yeah. um, they've actually come back the um, the um, following season, and um, their um, mom was like, you know, my kids haven't stopped talking about wow. you. They love you, and like wow. you're the reason that they're so into skiing. And just, so, just seeing those kids coming back and um, getting to ski with them and see that progress, that was that was awesome. Let me tell you, for also, you know, nursing sounds great in theory, but you're spending a lot of time with sick and dying people. It can be a burnout profession. And, yeah. and you know, there is something very uplifting about teaching the next generation. Just be great. Don't be boring. Really, mm-hmm. really relate to the kids. Really spend the time with the kids. Prepare your lessons. Be good. But you can be laid back. And I think, you know, the late people, the the true, well, you know, my board operator says teaching has a high burnout rate, average lifespan three years. Not quite. Um, the uh, We now are at 25% of teachers leave within the first five years, maybe 30%. But if you have the right personality and you get the right training, I'm really glad that Joanne mentioned this. It's all a matter of, not all, that's a lie. If you have the natural talent, that is, you, you've got these, te- these parents saying you, 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 the kid wants you back, and if you in the training get great supervision in your student teaching and field work so you can get role models for how to really do a great job of controlling the class, if you, that's really critical because if you can't control the class, they're going to eat you alive, and you're going to be gone in a year, not three. But if you can learn the art of gentle classroom management. It's not screaming. It's not yelling. It's being quietly firm, not tolerating a lot of misbehavior, but addressing it in a kind but firm way so the kids know you're on their side. That's the world's shortest course in classroom management. But being really aware of when kids are fooling around and expecting excellent behavior, but being kind in in getting them to be quiet. Saying, you know, Johnny, I love teaching. I want my kids to learn. You got to be quiet. You know, that kind of thing, that approach, rather than shut up, Johnny, is right. going to make you somebody who's not going to burn out. So great mentorship, firm but kind, and with your natural talent for teaching, apparently, I am optimistic that you would do well in teaching. Make sense? Yeah, it does. That's honestly it's something I hadn't ever considered. Well, that's a great point. Sometimes it's wise to listen to your father, even though it took you a year to call, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's listening to the radio right now laughing. <laughs> right. Well, you you can give him the finger or whatever you want to do. That, that, yeah, that, that, that was sure a joke. I'll, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll get a phone call in the next couple of minutes here. All right. So. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to let you go. You take care. Be well. Good luck. All right. All right. Bye. Thank you so much. Yep. I was in the middle of talking about uh, peer co-mentoring, which is a really potent tool for self-improvement and for building friendships. And like I said, I've been in a, I've initiated and been a participant in a pair of peer co-mentoring and a group of eight. And here is the kind of the summary of what I've learned about how to make it work. Um, first, it's the Vegas rule. What happens here stays here. People need to know it's confidential. You need to listen more than talk. You really need to listen carefully to what they're saying, their tone, everything. Before giving advice, you need to ask yourself if it's wiser to ask a question. Maybe it's to get more information about the problem, like, you want to tell me what you've already tried or considered? Or it could be a question to try to get the solution to come from the person, like, what would the wise person within you do? 
That's much more effective often than giving advice because the person, having explained it, now may have come up with a solution and they're more likely to implement it because it was their idea. Also, the person knows him or herself better than you do and so their idea may take more into consideration than your suggestion would have. Now, another of my ground rules, if you're feeling judgmental about a person's idea or even about the person overall, instead of expressing the judgment, try at least to come up with a question that would allow the person to self-assess, like, as you think about it, what do you think the chances are of that idea working? Let's say you think the idea is stupid. <laughs> Instead of saying it's a stupid idea, saying, as you think about it, what do you think are the chances of that idea working? Or let's say it's a broader judgment, and you, you know, you're thinking the person is just an overall you know, um, bad person. So you might ask a question like, so as you look at what you've done or not done this year, what letter grade from A to F might you give yourself and why? Right? We are essentially out of time, but uh, let's see. I want to give you one more little tip about this. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, just some, in terms of structure. You want to consider 30 to 60 minutes, maybe weekly or semi-weekly or you know, every other week or monthly because longer than an hour tends to be too much of a time imposition, and if you meet less frequently than monthly, it tends to dissipate the bond among the members. Although even after a while, the interval can extend to a, a quarter. But anyway, whether you're, you're dealing with uh, people who are heavily degreed or high school dropouts, being a peer co-mentor offers the promise of problem solving, friendship, and networking, all customized to your needs and all for free. So might you want to start a, a peer co-mentoring pair or a group? If so, get off the phone and, uh, you know, I mean, off the radio and invite the persons you most respect and you think would be do, do well in peer, peer co-mentoring, I could not recommend it more highly. And that is Work with Marty Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and, of course, all of you for listening and calling in. Please join me again next Thursday at 7 p.m. You can call in for a workover, plus working together with your romantic partner, the promise, the pitfalls. I'll explore that with someone with whom I have firsthand experience. My wife, Dr. Barbara Nemco. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't.